Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. Today we are recording live from the Canadian Surgical Forum, or CSF. This is the annual conference that brings together general surgeons from across Canada. We had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Vogt, who is a trauma and acute care surgeon. We talked to her today about her work on acute care surgery and her early prolific career. Kelly, we're we're here at the Canadian Surgery Forum, um, uh, and you've been kind enough to to engage uh, us on cold steel, and we're we're really, really excited about that. Um, Just to start and and sort of stick locally, what do you like about the CSF? You've you've been coming here for a lot of years, and and what are the sessions and the content and the things that that you seem to enjoy the most? Thanks so much for having me. I'm honored to be on the podcast and live at the CSF. The CSF has been uh, such an integral part of how I grew up as a surgeon. I've been coming since I was a resident and it's so fun to go from residency when you get to come and see your peers from across the country and just full of ideas and excitement and go to sessions that are interesting and I really remember that as a resident and now as I've transitioned into practice and, and some administrative roles. It's such a wonderful opportunity to get together with colleagues from across the country, see friends that I don't see on a regular basis, and be part of not only reviewing what we've done, but in generating new knowledge and working towards improving surgical care in Canada. I think the meeting is really cool because it brings leaders from all across our country and also people who are up and coming in leadership together to be able to come up with new ideas and take them home provides an opportunity for us to work together collaboratively, collaboratively, which I think is a tremendous strength of the Canadian surgical system. Yeah, I don't think we could agree more. It's a it's a special place and it's very Canadian and it feels different than international and American meetings. It sure. really does. Yeah. yeah. Um, you've recently taken over the role as, as sort of the national lead for um, acute care surgery, emergency, general surgery, or the newly formed Canucks group. Mm-hmm. Um, um, tell us, uh, when you create content for a stream like the EGS, acute care surgery stream, what sort of elements go into that? How do you pick speakers and topics, and how, how do you view that? We're so fortunate in acute care surgery or emergency general surgery, whichever term you prefer, that so many dynamic leaders in the country are really a part of our group. And so when we sat down specifically this year to develop the content stream for acute care surgery, what we talked about is how can we help all the general surgeons in Canada? And so what we landed on was really clinically relevant pearls, tips and tricks. Our session was all about If you're alone in the night, what do you do in those difficult circumstances? And I think we as a group feel that that's what resonates with most of the surgeons and the trainees that are attending. So we had a great session yesterday where we had experts in their fields talk about complicated biliary disease and complicated colorectal disease and really, you know, surgical rescue or this idea of complications in general surgery. 
all stuff that's supremely relevant not only to the acute care surgery specialist, but also to every general surgeon who's operating across this country. That's great. We, uh, it's great to have you here and uh, actually talk to you in person and really dissect out one of the papers that we found fascinating in the Canadian General Surgery. Um, and one of the, you've published uh, in your you know, very early prolific career uh, a number of papers even in CJS, but one of the ones that stood out uh, to us was um, the paper entitled Beyond Just the Operating Room, Characterizing the Complete Caseload of a Tertiary Acute Care Surgery Service, which was published in 2018. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to, to write this paper and to do this study? Thank you guys for highlighting this paper because I think it's um, a really one of the really interesting things that we've done and I should start by giving credit to our medical student actually, Tiunas, who did the majority of the work on this paper, is now uh, doing residency not in surgery but <laughs> still a spectacular guy. So when we sat down and thought about this paper, it really was framed in the idea that We've talked a lot, and most people listening will know, that emergency general surgery care has changed in the last 20, 25 years. And it's become, in many centers, not all, but in many centers, segregated into acute care surgery or emergency general surgery services. And along with that change came some research and some publications looking at that concept. But the early work really focused on what were we operating on. And because as general surgeons, we operate a lot on appendicitis and biliary disease, there was a lot on how did these services modify the way that we treated those diseases. And I think that's tremendously important, but what we felt was lacking in the literature at the time was a more comprehensive understanding of what these services do. Anybody who deals with this patient population knows that, first of all, we operate on more things than the appendix and the gallbladder, but also we don't operate on everybody. And not everybody is admitted to our service, though many patients come from the emergency department. Not all of them do. So the idea behind this paper was really to take our acute care surgery service and describe everything that we did, every patient that we interacted with, where they came from, and on a macro scale, what happened to them. Did they have an operation? Did they have an intervention that wasn't an operation? Did they have no operation? and then a little bit about their trajectory in terms of after they were discharged from hospital, did they come back or did they end up needing an operation? Can you tell us a little bit about the methods of how you actually uh, conducted the study and which patients you chose and how you have a little bit of the nitty-gritty and how you actually did the paper? Yeah, absolutely. So again, really helpful to have a medical student who did this <laughs> as part of a summer research program because we wanted to capture stuff that you can't capture retrospectively. This was a prospective cohort study. We did it over a two-month period, and basically what our student did was go every single day, hang out with the ACS service, and see what they were doing. So we captured every patient that the ACS service had contact with, whether that was through just a phone call, whether it was through a consult from an in, another inpatient service, a consult from the emergency department, an intraoperative consult. So every patient was captured and then we followed them prospectively till 30 days after their surgery to see what happened with them. Ke Kelly, you, you touched on um, the reality of uh, a mature emergency general surgery, acute care surgery service not operating on everybody. Mm -hmm. In other words, we tend to look after a, a real broad range of, of folks from minor, semi-minor illnesses right up to critically ill. Mm -hmm. um, wh what was your finding, what were your observations about that cohort that we don't operate on? 
Mm-hmm. Um, what are your overall thoughts? And then also, you know, the, that's the clinical part, but then from a system part in terms of who provides the best care and how do you view that whole segment of, of the folks we look after? That's a really great question, Chad. So I think you have to look at people we don't operate on as falling into two, maybe three camps. <laughs> There's the people that you meet that are consulted to you from whatever way they get to you that you meet them and you know that they're never going to get an operation. And in those people, sometimes it's the disease process. Sometimes it's, you know, this person has terrible pancreatitis right now and their gallbladder's already out and we need to look after them because they're sick, but they don't need an operation right this minute. And sometimes it's this patient is too sick and they're never going to get an operation and whether that's sick because of the acute illness or it's sick because of whatever they had their comorbidities before it's clear that those patients are never going to get an operation and then there's the people who definitely are going to get an operation and that's the patients who come in with acute appendicitis or perforated viscous or something that we know we just have to do an operation on them and then the most interesting group in my mind are the ones who come into hospital or get consulted for who have a disease that may be operative and maybe isn't. And and the classic example of that is an adhesive small bowel obstruction. Do we watch them? Do we operate on them now? Do we operate on them later? What do we do? And so in the context of who's the best person to care for all those patients, I really strongly believe that one of the greatest benefits of this acute care surgery model or whatever you want to call it, is that it takes all those patients with a common problem of derangements in their physiology, plus or minus derangements in their anatomy, and has them cared for by experts in dealing with sick patients. I think that what separates the acute care surgery expert from uh, elective surgical expert is that the acute care surgery expert focuses all of their time and attention on patients who have derangements in their physiology on patients who are sick. And I think that that's what makes us a little bit uh, more aware of the impact of changes in that physiology and ultimately, hopefully, is providing the best patient care for that group of patients. Do you see that evolving over time? Or, and of course, this, this practice varies from place to place, but do you see our role being different, like turning some of these diseases as, uh, into a, where we become exclusively consulting service? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, I think you really touched on it, that there's a lot of practice variability across the country. Certainly in my place, what the diseases you mentioned are already the purview of our general surgery service. And, um, you know, I'm biased in saying that I think that's good care for the patients. I think the extent to which your hospital system allows for collaborative work between services really is going to define how the patients have the best outcome. If you're set up that you have a service that's going to admit those patients who's going to provide the same frequent reassessment with an eye to potential need for surgical intervention, who's going to stay on top of the fluids and and the best evidence in managing the care of that patient, who communicates well with the surgeons and frequently with the surgeons, I don't see that as being a problem. Um, I think in fragmented systems, though, you run the risk of running into trouble for patients who have potentially surgical problems managed on non-surgical services. Just to take that concept a little further, uh, Kelly, we we know across this country, um, you know, that being Canada, that the structure of ACS services varies widely. 
both in terms of resources and footprint as well as in terms of participants within those services. What's your overriding philosophy or thought on you know, one model which would be really truly we hire six to eight acute care surgeons to run that service like a paddleability service, a transplant service, a trauma service mm -hmm. versus a more multidisciplinary group where a you might have a colorectal surgeon one week, an HPV surgeon another week, and then an endocrine surgeon potentially for a third week as long as they're doing enough of those weeks. Mm -hmm. what, what's your sense? Is there one that's better than the other or, or is it all good? What do you think? Yeah, so you've touched on a really, um, what I would consider probably one of the biggest controversial topics in acute care surgery in Canada right now. And I will provide a little bit of background of, that I did train in the U.S., so I had the opportunity to see how that system differs a little bit from our system. And I think what I took away from it, or at least one of the main things I took away from that, was how different Canadian departments of surgery are than American departments of surgery. And the biggest difference I noticed is in the collegiality and the ability to work together as a group. And I bring that up because it actually is fundamental to the way that I think about the question that you asked. I think that, as I said before, if your group doesn't talk to each other, if they don't work well together, if you're not able to pick up the phone and call someone who has different expertise than you from the clinic or from the operating room, that's where I see the benefit of having an acute care surgery service run by acute care surgery experts only. In Canada, where our colorectal surgeons and our HPV surgeons and our surgical oncologists communicate within our departments of surgery with our acute care surgery specialists, I actually think that the diversity in the ACS service in that model is probably a benefit, not a detriment to our patients. The key there is that if you're outside of your comfort zone, and whether that be because it's a complex trauma patient and you don't manage those very often, or because it's a terrible gallbladder and you need help from your HPB expert, what matters is that you are comfortable to pick up the phone and call someone to help you. And we see that in our place all the time, you know, and I I, my sense is that that's the same across the country. So in answer to your question, when people work well together, I think it's valuable to have different subspecialists staff your ACS service. One of the other challenges I think that's highlighted in your paper is that um, there's a fairly high readmission rate and representation rate to the emergency department um, and readmission back to the hospital after being discharged from acute care services as highlighted in, in your paper. Um, and how do you see that further follow-up um, going for acute care surgeons who might, might not necessarily in many places have a ACS follow-up clinic or a predefined uh, way of following up, uh, especially with patients that aren't operated on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's uh, probably one of, the, one of the big things that we need to sort of talk about in ACS. I think there's two important points to make when you look at the high rate of return to the uh, emergency department and also the high rate of return to the operating room for our patients in this cohort and, and broadly in ACS across Canada. I think the first thing is it highlights we take care of sick patients. You know, at a baseline, our patients have acute surgical or maybe not even non-surgical problems. They have baseline comorbidities. You don't get to optimize any of that stuff before they come into your care. 
And so at, at a baseline, they're sick. And I think there's always going to be a return to the emergency department and a later delayed operation in that group of patients for that reason. I think part of it is our fiscal constraints and our desire to get people out of the hospital as soon as we can. And I think for the most part, that's good for them. We just need to be a little bit more precise in who we're choosing to do those things in. But I think the biggest thing we took from this is that high number really identifies for us that there's room for improvement in the way that we're caring for the acute care surgical patient. I have lots of theories. But the interesting thing about ACS is that, like trauma was you know, 50 years ago, we're just at the beginning of this. We don't systematically collect data on these patients. We don't systematically review data on these patients. And so how we can actually intervene to improve the quality of care that we're providing, I think is largely unknown. And one of the great things about ACS services is it puts all the patients together we can capture them much easier than we used to be able to do. And so one of my big vision things, one of the biggest things that I hope we can achieve in the next five years is some sort of way of frequently capturing or capturing all the data for all of our ACS patients so that we can use that to inform practice change research too, but also quality improvement so we can reduce some of this readmission. It's a, it's a really neat time to be um, I, you know, I would say either training or, or working at the at the front half of, of careers, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is, this I agree with you. I mean, this is sort of what you would think that trauma felt like in the early to mid '80s. Yeah, I think it's so exciting. I feel so privileged to be a part of this at this stage of it because we really just have so much opportunity, and I think we can do so much good for the patients. Maybe we can transition talking a little bit more about you and, and your career, and um, but maybe you can tell us a bit about. Um, kind of where you grew up, uh, where you did your training, and uh, what your what your practice is, is kind of like now clinically and academically. Sure. So I uh, was born in Edmonton, but I my parents moved back when I was back to Ontario <laughs> when I was six months old. So I grew up uh, in Ontario, mostly in Oakville, just outside of Toronto. Um, I had an awesome upbringing. I lived with my parents and my three siblings, and we were all pretty close in age. So. That prepared me well for the scrappiness of surgical residency, I would say. Uh, I did my undergrad in Waterloo, and uh, that was that was pretty important. I did a epidemiology course there, which was my sort of first introduction to epidemiology and research, and just fell in love with it. So much so that I debated between uh, doing my PhD and going to medical school in the first place. Um, but uh, you know, I ended up saying yes to the medical school where I went to Western, and I did my surgical residency there too. Uh, really incredible mentorship uh, from numerous people. Dr. Ron Holiday, who got me into general surgery in the first place. I was at one point going to be a pediatrician. Really glad I didn't take that career path. Uh, and then Dr. Murray Girardi, Neil Perry, Daryl Gray, who really showed me how awesome trauma could be and, and kind of led me down that path. I was fortunate enough to do my fellowship at LA County with Dr. Dimitriadis and Dr. Inaba and a tremendous group of people there and um, learned a ton in those two years in Los Angeles and then came back on staff at Western. Kelly, looking back, you know, five years out from, from the start, what would you like to have told yourself or what would you have liked your younger self to have known, uh, you know, as you transitioned, particularly in the first couple of years and, and maybe beyond? Yeah. 
So the thing I tell my trainees now, because I wish someone had told me this <laughs> along the way, is that the medicine is by and large the easy part. You spend so much of your career, all of your career before you start your staff job, learning how to do the medicine, the operating, the clinical care. And by the time you finish your training, you're pretty good at that stuff. I mean, you're, there's still hiccups and you know, in your first year, you're gonna see things you never saw in your training, but you have the building blocks to be able to come up with the solutions. What very few people highlight in your training is all the rest of it. The administration, how do you fit the research in? How do you have a life when you haven't had a life for so many years because all you've done is train? So I wish someone had told me that ahead of time. <laughs> so, what, so what's the answer? How do, how do you do that? I don't know yet. I've only been doing this for five years. Uh, the things that I've learned, at least in part, are you can't figure out all the answers until you start. You can't figure out all the answers maybe until you finish or maybe never. But uh, certainly you have to be in those positions before you can start to figure out how to do them. I will say that probably the biggest transition I've gone through is the transition uh, to becoming a parent. Because that really has impacted my work life more than I ever thought. And uh, trying to figure out how to balance work and life when life is two small children who depend entirely on you has been the most challenging, also the most rewarding, but the most challenging thing I've ever done. I mean, you, you touched on it a little bit in terms of mentorship early and influence early, but you know, I'd say obviously, and I think this is clear to everybody, your immediate group, your support group at work, your colleagues, can really make or break your initial few years for sure, mm -hmm. tremendously. You know, it can either really set you off on this great path, and or really um, lead to a long period of struggle. Um, and you know, as 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 I say often, as you guys know, your group in, in London is fantastic. I could not ask you know. for more incredible partners, yeah. and really, I mean. Our division under Ken Leslie's leadership, and I mean, you just look at who's in my hallway with me, you know, Ken Leslie's office across from mine, Mike Ott, Daryl Gray, Neil Perry, Chris Vinden. I mean, such incredible people to work with, to run ideas by, to support you in and outside the operating room. I would be nowhere without that support. What, what does a typical day look like for you, uh, especially when we were talking about the fact that you have two kids and you just, like, what, what's a typical day like for you uh, or a typical week like for you? Yeah, so we're, we're really lucky in that, um, you know, myself and, and a couple others in London actually, we're really hired as acute care experts. So we do weeks of acute care surgery, weeks of trauma, um, and then have other weeks that are more focused on administration and research. In terms of a typical day, uh, our just turned one-year-old gets up around six, so that's usually when I'm up in the morning with her, and, and our almost or just over two-year-old is, is up a little after that, which is actually lovely because I get to spend a bit of time with them in the morning uh, before the nanny gets there, and then I head off to work. My days vary, but I try really hard to, uh, to stick to just short periods of time on my email because I find that that's a real time waster. So my first 30 minutes of the day are usually a coffee and dealing with my email no matter what my day looks like. And then whether it's our acute care surgery clinic or trauma clinic or um, whatever other clinical things I need to do in that day, they get done pretty early. I like to spend my mornings working on research. I find it easier 
my brain doesn't function as well later in the day. So if I have writing or analysis or things to do, I tend to do them a bit earlier in the day and I leave my administrative tasks, which generally seem to be a bit more task oriented and easier to check off the list more towards the end of the day usually. That's on a week that I'm not really doing as much clinical work. So, And then home for the kids and feed them and give them baths and put them to bed and then uh, either my husband and I get to spend a little time together or we both pick up our computers and have work to do after dinner. <laughs> do you have any advice for someone uh, potentially who wants to be an academic surgeon, um, you know, beyond the role models, is there anything else that you would uh, have as advice? I was lucky in that uh, the way my residency was structured at the time, I was able to take a year in the middle and do my master's, which I did a master's of clinical epidemiology at McMaster at that time, working with the group at Mac, who, who were really the, you know, founders of clinical epidemiology, gave me a tremendous footing to start off on this academic career. The first piece of advice I would give is do it if you love it because it's hard after a long day to write a paper. It's hard to keep getting rejected <laughs> and have to turn the stuff around and keep working on something you know is important but you can't quite convince the rest of the world is important. So if you don't love it, don't do it. And then in terms of the practicalities, the other piece that has been very helpful for me is I'm currently working on my PhD, which gives me a nice structure to my research program. The biggest two things I can say that have helped me be productive so far in my career, the first is finding a way to protect your time, which sounds easy. And in fact, my contract says I get 75% protected research time. Um, remembering that nobody's going to protect that time except you. So for me, sometimes that means turning the lights off in my office and shutting the door so that people don't know I'm there, but I can actually spend that time writing or doing what I need to do to be productive academically. Um, or even working off-site sometimes if I don't have clinical responsibilities that day, finding a coffee shop or somewhere else that I can work. And the second, you said not to talk about mentors, but I think it's really important to recognize that I wouldn't be where I am without people like Chad who have helped me along the way. Find people who love what you love and they will be so thrilled to capitalize on your enthusiasm for it and help you along the way. Even if Chad's not writing the papers for me, the fact that he supports my ideas and I can bounce things off of him or he can give me advice has helped me more than probably anything else in my career. So working with people who are like-minded, who have the same vision and same goals that you do, will make work not only fun, but so much easier. You're, you're too kind, Kelly. Um, I'm going to ask you a, maybe a, a bit of a pointed question and then a really fun question to mm -hmm. end. Um, yesterday here at, the, here at the CSF, there was a group of us talking about a statement that someone who's well-known had made, and they, he sort of said that the era of the triple threat surgeon is dead. And, you know, as we discussed, the, the triple threat concept comes from H Hopkins in, in Baltimore. And I sort of argued that that maybe maybe not that's true because the original embodiment of that statement from from that group had to do with basic science research, clinical care, and clinical education. And there's not too many of us doing basic science research anymore. Um, I would argue that those people still exist, and those programs still exist. And it just looks different than it did in Hopkins in the 60s, 
what do you what do you think of that? So I agree and I disagree. <laughs> so what I'm going to say is that I think that there are some exceptional people that choose to be surgeons. And I think what makes the surgeon scientist, however you define that, maybe the coolest people that I know is the fact that they take their opportunities and opportunities I mean their training, the patients that they see every day, the people they interact with every day, and they turn those opportunities into ideas and know how to ask questions where the answers matter. And to me, that's the most important triple threat that we can still provide, I think, in our clinician scientists. They ask the questions, they know how to answer the questions, and they know how to take that information and translate it to the broader population. So I think they exist. Our last question for you is about one of your many passions, about wine. <laughs> yes. And you, you and your husband uh, are um, rapidly becoming known as, as uh, important wine connoisseurs, so to speak, or collectors, or from an ignorant uh, person on that level, I, you know, I don't know what the terminology is, but tell us what, what you love about the wine world so much, why you love it, and, and why it's so central to your life, and maybe even if there's an, uh, anything analogous or not to, to your professional life. Sure. My love of wine started actually with my dad. My dad and I are um, very similar people, which as you can imagine as a teenage girl, that meant we fought a lot. Uh, and when, we, when I was early in my training, I got the opportunity to take a trip with my dad and we went to Napa, just him and I, which had never happened before. And we bonded like we've never bonded before over that wine. And so it's, it started out as an emotional thing for me. And then the science of it became tremendously, in, tremendously interesting and trying to understand the different varietals and how you understood what they were. And, um, I have I really enjoy trying to pick it apart in a scientific way and then uh, when I met my husband he jokes that if he had responded I like white wine to my first question of what kind of wine do you drink we probably wouldn't still be together but and he might be right but uh, what he did say was Cabernet Sauvignon which is my favorite and and our relationship grew actually in the vineyards of Napa we ended up getting engaged there and so the emotional piece of it for me and for us as a couple really has a tremendously important part of why we love it so much. You open a bottle that you drank at a special time in your life and brings back memories and other than liking the wine, that kind of stuff really helps. I don't really link it too much to the job other than to say that sometimes at the end of a long day, it's probably the only thing that makes me feel better. <laughs> You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again. <laughs>